Heighty Heads, this is Don from Mayleaf. Every Chinese New Year, I try to sit down and piece together some of my recent thoughts to discuss topics outside of tea which are close to my heart and circling around in my mind. It is as much a therapy for me to attempt to crystallize these sometimes diverse ideas into a little speech as it is hopefully an interesting presentation and diversion from which you can launch further thoughts and discussions. This year, I would like to talk about the struggle between individualism and collectivism in shaping our world and our experiences. Some of these thoughts influenced our states of self game at the end of 2021. If you'd like to take part in that game, then you have until the end of this month, February 2022, to take part before we take it offline. And you may want to complete the game before listening to this presentation. Head over to statesofself.life if you want to begin your journey. So here is a question for you. Which is the better foundation for a happy, sustainable and progressive society? A collectivist approach where the members of a society strive to meet the aims and intentions of the collective or an individualistic approach where all collective structures are ultimately in existence only to serve the individual. One has the collective or group as the fundamental moral unit of concern and the other gives that honor to the individual. Individualism has many forms from Western liberalism to libertarianism to anarchism. It shows itself in movements such as the Renaissance, the Age of Enlightenment, the Romantic and Bohemian movements, as well as free market capitalism. The common thread for individualistic movements is the supremacy of individual freedom and the intrinsic worth of the individual. It promotes the idea that the collectives are there just as service to the individual and not the other way around. Collectivism shows itself in many forms from the strict familial codes set out in Confucianism and many other traditional Eastern cultures, all the way to immense collectives like nation states, global agencies like the UN and WHO, organized religions and other movements like corporatism. Collectivism claims the supremacy of the group over the individual. The collective um, goals are above the individual's goals. The individual, therefore, should be loyal to the group for the good of the entire collective. Now, instinctively, you may be drawn to collectivism since it, it feels more virtuous, less selfish, and achieves that tricky to define and often abused term called the greater good. Or perhaps you are instinctively anti-authoritarian and distrustful of the collectivist approach and prefer to protect the sovereignty and supremacy of the individual. Whichever your instinctive stance, individualism versus collectivism is the omnipresent tension that has shaped, built and destroyed societies of the past and present. And I believe that now more than ever, it is essential that we engage vigorously with this debate to find new paths for humanity. Before I go on, I want to make it clear that I do not approach this topic from any particular political standpoint. And while some of you may want to assign me to a position on the left or right spectrum, I see this spectrum as outdated 
and practically meaningless. Oftentimes, I see very little difference in the underlying processes and reactions that fuel these left-right tribes, and they sort of blur together for me. Far left and far right show equal levels of intolerance and have become so entrenched and isolated from true dialogue that they seem to have forgotten what their purpose is, other than to oppose each other. I also don't think that either individualism or collectivism. Neatly fits into any particular traditional concept of left versus right. You can certainly find examples of both in either on either side of the political divide. I would prefer us all to try to elevate above these tribes to look at the subject with the eyes of a student. So, how can we reconcile the pros and cons of individualism and collectivism into a more Enlightened system for humanity, and is this even possible? Whenever you look out into the world, you see individuals. They have a clear shape and boundary. They physically exist as much as any object in our interpretation of reality. We can, of course. Argue about what the individual self is comprised of in terms of spirit, memory, psychology, etc. We can argue about its transience, where it came from, and where it goes. But we cannot question the physical presence of the individual and our personal, undeniable experience of the self. And that's not to say that the self is not, in many ways. Uh, shaped and defined by its environment and relations with each other, we do, of course, live in a relational universe rather than an atomized one. But the existence of the individual has a sense of concreteness that collectives simply do not. You see, a collective or group has to, by definition, be made up of individuals, and a collective is entirely defined by the interaction of individuals and the stories that they tell. The aims or rules of the collective can change, or it can disappear altogether. And ultimately, it is the individuals which exist, and not the collective. In this way, just like a brand, a collective is not an entity which actually exists, but is instead simply a narrative authored by individuals. This is true of all collectives, from nation states to political parties, from religious and scientific groups to corporations. That is not to say that the narratives are necessarily fictitious or false, but just that they are created by individuals interacting. The intentions, goals, decisions, and actions are not actually chosen or taken by the collective, but by the individuals in that collective. They change as people in the collective change, and can be somewhat arbitrary. Ludwig von Mises, an economist, historian, logician, and sociologist, who is seen as one of the major influences of the libertarian and liberal movements, sums this up by saying that society does not exist apart from the thoughts and actions of people. It does not have interests and does not aim at anything. The same is valid for all other collectives. The fact that a collective is actually just a group of individuals poses a fundamental problem for collectivism. All collectives, no matter how grassroots their origins, will inevitably have individuals governing the collective in a top-down approach. 
If you've ever sat in a meeting of more than five to 10 people, then you'll know that deciding on a group's aims, actions, and intentions is very challenging. And inevitably, the paths agreed are decided by a few individuals who are more dominant, influential, or convincing. The rest become willing or unwilling herds. Extrapolate this out to larger collectives and you will find the problem becomes even more extreme with a small group of people making decisions which affect many times larger herds of individuals. We all know that power has a tendency to corrupt and natural individual biases will always come into play so that the actions of a collective will often not be for the mutual benefit of the collective, whatever that may mean, but instead will be to secure the goals of the decision makers and maintain their power and influence. How much of a politician's decision-making is determined by the good of the collective rather than securing re-election or achieving personally important goals? The same applies to all collectives, from communities to large global agencies, from, from religious groups to scientific collectives. No matter what the collective, they will always reach a point where the actions of the group are overly influenced by a small number of people with their own biases and potential corruption, and the direction of the group becomes manipulated to meet their own personal goals. And therefore, collectivism becomes individualism by another name, but with a greater power in numbers than if the decision makers had act independently outside of a group. A collective can only exert influence and achieve its aims once it reaches a certain size. The required size is determined by the extent and scope of its aims, but almost always bigger is better. Also, there is no universal ideology for collectives. Religion, politics, race, nationality, science, industry, they all exist at the same time with their own aims and individuals will often um, belong to many collectives at the same time, even if sometimes their goals and approach contradict each other. And this forces the individuals to choose allegiances, and that may cause unnecessary inner conflict, which weakens the individual or entrenches and radicalizes them. Each collective is competing with each other to gain more influence, which further causes conflicts. Nation states have historically tried to claim more territory and therefore more resources and more individuals to have under its control. The same is true of many religions, corporations and global agencies. As collectives become larger, they wield more control to completely change the lives of individuals for better or worse. More power over more people in the hands of fewer individuals is a dangerous recipe for the world. These collectives are often unelected, so any semblance of a democratic process is removed entirely. They are also less transparent and hide much of their work behind a bureaucratic veil. As political philosopher Hannah Arendt said, in a fully developed bureaucracy, there is nobody left with whom one can argue, to whom one can present grievances, on whom the pressures of power can be exerted. Bureaucracy is the form of government in which everybody is deprived of political freedom, of the power to act. For the rule by nobody is not no rule. And where all are equally powerless, we have a tyranny without a tyrant. 
a large part of the job of those in control of the collective becomes a campaign to convince the rest of the collective that they have shared goals, even if this is patently untrue, and then push forwards the necessary actions to meet those supposed shared goals by trying to create a herd mentality. This is usually done through the use of emotive communication, often the most effective being fear, which if left unchecked by a compliant or corrupt media can become a wall of propaganda. It is easy to see how a well-meaning government can easily be corrupted by the individuals in charge and how those states can descend into authoritarian and exclusionist regimes. Another criticism of collectivism is that it is by definition exclusionary, by choosing who can and who cannot be in the group. These criteria for inclusion can be manipulated by those in charge and used to ostracize individuals with a difference of opinion or shame a member into conformity. This further reinforces the herd. It is therefore easy to see why many feel that collectivism is a pathway to tyranny. And it is striking that the most brutal authoritarian leaders such as Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Pol Pot and Mao have all adopted collectivism with its rallying cry of the greater good used to justify acts of evil and control. The greater good argument has been used so often by tyrannical regimes of the past to manipulate well-meaning and moral people to act out or accept terrible wrongdoings. The greater good has caused more death and misery in history than any other slogan, and it should be a huge warning flag requiring rigorous attention and discourse whenever we hear this term being used by any leaders to justify extreme acts. But there is also no question that collectives can achieve great things. The power of a collective of individuals cooperating and working together can achieve much more than individuals acting independently. They can drive movements for positive change, provide protection and support for the weak and vulnerable, and can genuinely benefit the individuals in that collective. So what dictates the path that any one collective will take towards tyranny or positivity? Well, there are probably very many factors, but at its heart, I believe that the deciding factor is going to be the qualities of the individuals in that collective and their understanding of themselves as relational, but ultimately sovereign selves. And that is why the individual to me should be the central emphasis of any positive society. Positive individuals create positive collectives. But before we discuss this further, let's take a look at individualism. As I said earlier, individualism doesn't suffer from the same metaphysical struggles that collectives do. An individual is clearly a distinct entity that exists. Some philosophers will talk about extended mind thesis, which claims that the mind extends outside of the boundaries of our bodies. And others will call out the fact that we are, like everything, a product of our environment and relationships. So I'm not saying that any one individual would be the same if placed in a different environment or in relationships that are different. But to my mind, it is clear that an individual is a concrete entity. It is individuals who perceive reality, process, plan, act and think, not groups. And from an epistemological point of view, it is the individual 
who generates knowledge, not a group. Of course, relationships with other individuals can help to share and transmit knowledge and can stimulate discussions to broaden knowledge. But all of these actions and perceptions are again taken by individuals. From a moral point of view, it is the individual that is always the moral endpoint. Even uh, in a collectivist society, the moral impact of decisions and actions is on the individuals, not the collective, since the collective does not actually exist. The fallacy of a moral unit called the collective is what leads the greater good argument into such dangerous and murky waters. It is a corruption of logic. It is always the individuals who will benefit or suffer. And if we say that the collectivist approach is that the moral compass of the group is set towards the majority of the individuals in that group, then aren't we on very slippery moral ground? Is it morally justifiable to punish 49% of the population for the benefit of 51%? So for all of these reasons, I find myself drawn to the solidity of the arguments for individualism. But what about the downsides of individualism? Well, there are potentially very many. Individualism can descend into a self-centered, selfish and heartless society. Without a strong collective like the state, who will take care of individuals in society when they need help and protection? Individualism may build a culture of no support and lead to a life with more isolation and less meaning. The individualism of free market economies can be stressful and self-serving and overinflate value. The greed of the individual to be richer and more powerful or become more valuable, whatever that means, will cause conflict and a rat race where no one actually ever wins. Individualism leads to more direct comparison, to assess self-worth, which can lead to depression and fatigue. Individualism brings with it more choice, but studies have clearly shown that while we all like the idea of choice, it actually makes us much less happy. We drown in a sea of options and never feel satisfied that we took the right decisions. So there are many potential pitfalls with individualism, and I can see why collectivism seems to be a growing mindset globally, despite the awful tyranny associated with many collectivist societies in recent history. But individualism has had many glorious epochs in human history, from the Age of Enlightenment in Europe to the civil rights movement in the US. So just like collectives, we have to ask the question, what is the primary deciding factor which determines if an individualistic society flourishes with human enlightenment or becomes fractured by human greed and selfishness? Again, my answer is the same as with collectives. The deciding factor is the qualities of the individuals. So what does this actually mean? Well, fundamentally, the self is the creator of all experience. The world and universe around you is a wild and beautiful symphony of information which we process and perceive as reality. Therefore, the individual is always the supreme unit, in my opinion, and should be afforded freedom unalienable rights and minimal interference from external control 
so long as their actions do not impact another individual's rights. I know that this is a very simplistic sentence that I've just said that requires a lot more unpacking, but maybe we'll reserve that for another discussion. The point is that no matter how much I am in favor of strong, positive, cooperative groups from families to communities to businesses and even global movements, my heart and mind have always been individualistic in nature. But it is clear that human beings are social beings and we always come together to cooperate and achieve mutual aims. These communities grow and join to create larger collectives. The influence and size of the collective becomes bigger and bigger and the decision-making power of the collective naturally gets transferred to a proportionally smaller group of people. Eventually, a natural tipping point emerges where there is a divergence of goals which corrupts the group and splinters or reforms the collective into smaller groups of individuals which are more representative. I think that this is the natural flow of human society. Individuals come together to create and cooperate and form collectives until those collectives reach a certain size and cease to be representative. The problems occur when large, power-hungry collectives are protected and propped up by systems and propaganda in order to maintain themselves rather than allowing the natural process of reform and regeneration to happen. And while rogue individuals can do harm, there is no more potentially damaging threat to mankind than huge collectives run by a corrupt ruling class. In order to prevent this, we need to make sure that we work on ourselves. Ultimately, any meaningful change in the world comes from changes to the self. Work on the self will reduce the downsides of both individualistic and collectivist systems. It's obvious to see why a healthy self is beneficial uh, in an individualistic society, but let us not forget that all collectives are made up of individuals. It is only the individuals in the collective which can action positive change and reform. The ability to spot corruption, free the mind from the incessant indoctrination and find the courage to leave the herd or take action, protest or be a vehicle for non-compliance requires work on the self. As Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, the antidote to this abuse of formal government is the influence of private character, the growth of the individual. As individuals, we are responsible for our morals. It cannot be dictated or created by groups. We must understand that as Kierkegaard said, wherever there is a crowd, there is untruth. And put in the effort to assimilate opinion, evidence and experience to calibrate our own moral compass and decide on what the greater good actually means and the best way to achieve it. This requires working on the self first and foremost and freeing yourself from public opinion. As Hegel said, to be independent of public opinion is the first formal condition of achieving anything great. If we do not work on ourselves, then we run the risk of losing our personal moral values. I'm always drawn to a quote by Hannah Arendt again, which encapsulates this. She said that the sad truth is that most evil is done by people who never make up their minds to be good or evil.
So what is this work on the self that I'm recommending? Well, this is where our states of self game comes in and what it was all about, in my mind at least. Life is a journey of the self, experienced through the senses and interpreted by the mind to create your states of self. We all start with innocence and from there we are met with experiences. The experiences themselves are rarely under our control but our response to them is and it informs our states of self and leads us on a path towards flourishing or corruption. And I use the term corruption without meaning to conjure up images of envelopes of cash being exchanged in secret to achieve influence or abuses of power. What I mean is a corruption of the joy and beauty of a positive life. From innocence, everything is new and we have a choice. Do we treat that newness with the open arms of discovery or do we shy away with insecurity? One is positive, the other is a corruption of positivity. The states of self naturally flow into each other. From discovery, we are likely to begin true learning. From insecurity, however, we are more likely to desire the safety of conformity. And so the list goes on. Learning leads to ambition to know and do more. This ambition helps us to find passion, which can lead to love, which brings us gratitude. Gratitude is the fastest way to find presence and presence liberates us from the worldly worries which almost always reside in the past or the future. In this state of presence, we achieve freedom. Or we can choose to change sides of the train and stare out of the window with a gloomier view. From conformity, we are forced to determine an identity from which to conform. This generates an external view of oneself and leads to egotism. The ego feeds on possession to try to increase its value. The desire to own possessions in order to prop up your perceived value is never satiated, which leads us to need. Need is the source of all fear, and fear is what makes us a prisoner in life. So from innocence, we can adopt a positive state of self which leads us to freedom or we can face a gloomier journey towards captivity. Of course, there are many more states of self and at any one time in our life, we're dealing with multiple experiences requiring a multitude of responses in different orders. But what I wanted to express in the States of Self game is that every experience is a crossroad in life and you always have a choice on how to respond to life's events, either along the path of flourishing or corruption. You just need to elevate yourself like that butterfly to see your whole journey, point yourself in the direction of flourishing and make your transition. It takes courage and commitment and faith, but this is the work that builds a happier and more sustainable individual and society. As Immanuel Kant wrote, for peace to reign on earth, humans must evolve into new beings who have learned to see the whole first. So here is the point, whether you support an individualistic or collectivist approach to society or a hybrid of the two, the direction of any society is determined by individuals. No matter what the society, from tyrannical to benign, from collectivist to individualistic, no matter what power or influence you feel you may or may not have over your life, community, industry or state, the single most important act which will bring the biggest amount of change to your life and the life of others is to commit 
to adopting positive, flourishing, life-affirming states of self. It is not always easy, but it is absolutely possible and does not require anything outside yourself to achieve. Individuals with a larger view of life, who understand and accept the transience of our existence and the folly of concepts like ego, value and conflict, those who approach all that they experience with gratitude and presence, individuals who always seek out a path which is in harmony with the flourishing of nature and use wisdom rather than partial information to make their choices. These are the individuals with clear vision, motivation and courage to see corruption and point society towards a more sustainable and enlightened existence. And if a substantial proportion of individuals commit to taking this path, then we can bring about great change and we will create a strong and progressive society which observes and promotes the natural ebb and flow of human development and can harness the value of cooperation and collectives while maintaining the freedom and sovereignty of the individual. But what does a substantial proportion mean? Well, it may be less than you think. Erica Chenoweth, a political scientist at Harvard University, says that history shows that the tipping point for social change requires the peaceful protest of 3.5% of the population. Perhaps this is a figure worth working towards. But the only thing that you can do and should do is work on your own self and let the positivity flow from this work naturally. As Vandana Shiva says, I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that itself creates new potential. So, as we move into the tiger year, I hope that more of us have time to move inwards, leave any entrenched positions, turn off the incessant noise and work on ourselves and our states of self, and allow these personal yet immense changes to bring clarity, courage, creativity, and a sense of freedom to all of our endeavors, which will trickle through society and eventually become a tidal wave of positive change. I leave you with a quote from the book Island by the great thinker and author Aldous Huxley, who ended our states of self game for those of you who took part. It's dark because you are trying too hard. Lightly, child, lightly. Learn to do everything lightly. Yes, feel lightly, even though you're feeling deeply. Just lightly let things happen and lightly cope with them. So throw away your baggage and go forward. There are quicksands all about you, sucking at your feet, trying to suck you down into fear and self-pity and despair. That's why you must walk so lightly. Happy Lunar Year to each and all. Cheers. Bye.